is Jacob Collier, and welcome to the podcast on Germany, episode three, Early Germans. Huh. Now, now that I think about it, I don't think we're ready for Early Germans just yet. You see, we're talking about the Early Germans, but we haven't discussed where we're getting our evidence yet. Maybe we should hold off for at least one more episode on the Early Germans. I know, I know, I promised you we'd be talking about the Early Germans today, but... I think we need to take a minute and talk about where we're going to get our evidence for these early Germans. So, let's take it back, start over. Hello all, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob Collier, and this is episode three, Let's Do Some Digging. Now, before we actually get into the episode, there's some things I'd like to talk about. First of all, if you're wanting to listen to this on iTunes, I apologize. I'm having a really hard time getting my account set up and Apple's being a little bit of a pain about it. So it's going to be a little bit until I can get it onto iTunes. If there's another way you'd like to listen to it, let me know. Send me a message on Facebook or email me at podcastongermany at gmail.com and I will get it uploaded onto whatever podcasting site you'd like. Just let me know, okay? Second... If you haven't yet, you can like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash podcast on Germany. You can also visit our website at www.podcastongermany.com. You can subscribe to get emails about updates to the website and updates on when the new episodes are coming out. All right, so last week, well, really not last week, it was Sunday, we had a mistake in our podcast. And as listener Heather was able to guess before this podcast came out, it was the Himalayas. The Himalayas are not in Europe. They're in Asia. They do not form the southern boundary of the early Germans. The Alps and the Carpathian Mountains are what form the southern boundary for these Germans. The Alps are located on the borders of modern-day Germany, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, and France. The Carpathians cover the northern and eastern border of modern-day Romania. The Himalayas, on the other hand, as I mentioned, they are in Asia. They're located at modern Tibet. So one point to Heather and anyone else who gets it right before listening to this podcast. If you listen to this podcast and you say you got right, well, that does not count. You know you didn't get the point. You know you didn't deserve the point. So no complaining. All right, so keep an ear out for today's mistake. Let's go ahead and get started on this episode. So today, instead of talking about the early Germans, we're going to be talking about archaeology and pre-written history. We are spending this episode on this material to help build our understanding of where the evidence comes from. This isn't coming just from books. This isn't coming from stories. This is hard evidence that we are finding to build up our understanding of these early Germans, of those who lived before anything was written down. So again, I apologize for the delay, but it's important that you understand where this evidence is coming from. Without having an understanding where this evidence is coming from, you're just solely relying on my word. And I've proven in every single episode that I'm not trustworthy because I always leave a mistake. Now, before we actually continue, I think we should discuss what exactly I mean when I say pre-written history. History 
does not start with the written record. Now we read history all the time. We read it from textbooks. We can watch it on the movies, but that comes from scripts. History is tied with writing. It's very hard for us to separate it. But just because there's no written record doesn't mean people didn't exist back then. It's not like we gain the ability to think and create and build when we learn the alphabet. In fact, we have to do all of those things first before we can even start to learn the ability to write and record. And that's because we don't need the ability to write and to record in order to procreate. We don't need it in order to survive, in order to flourish. The ability to write takes a back seat to survival. Take, for example, the Native Americans. We have no written record for the majority of the natives. It's not like they didn't exist before Christopher Columbus showed up. I mean, we know the Vikings meet them in the north based off of the finds from their attempted settlements in the north. The Aztecs, the Incas, they will build these massive empires in Central and Southern America. They'll gain massive amounts of advancements in technology and science. But they don't enter the European written record till the 1400s and 1500s. So how do we understand them? How do we build their world before it's written down? Before we come to understand it? Well, there is something that we all do that we can actually use to build a record without having to rely on writing. That is trash. We trash things. We create trash. It's inevitable. No matter who you are, you create trash. You leave a footprint of your daily life in everything you do. Now, I don't mean that we all go and we rent a room at a hotel and we trash it. We just destroy everything. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is every step we take, everything we do, every moment we live, we leave behind a footprint, something that's been changed that's not there from nature. If you create anything, you leave your footprint on this earth because you've put something there that wasn't there before. These footprints, these remains that we create, they can be studied by later generations. Now imagine we have an apocalypse, man-made or natural. Something happens and we as a society collapse. We forget or we lose the majority of our knowledge. Everything that's written down or is in our computers disappears or is destroyed. How would the future learn about us? How would they build an understanding about us? Well, they'd look what remains from us. They would look at our trash. They'd look at our cars. They'd look at the foundations of our houses, of our buildings that have survived throughout time in order to build an understanding of how we lived as a society and as people. The material that will last the longest, that will be easily recognizable, that will stand out for these future generations, won't be from nature. It won't be animal remains. It won't be plant remains. It will be man-made. Things that you wouldn't find in nature that will be the easiest material for these future generations to study. These man-made materials also typically have a longer 
lifespan than natural material. You can do a little experiment if you like. You could take a bottle cap and a piece of meat and you set them off to the side. You probably don't want them in your house. You set them off to the side. You leave them there. And every year you come back and you check on them. What's going to remain the longest? The bottle cap or the piece of meat? It's the bottle cap, right? It's preserved. It's made to withstand nature. Meat, on the other hand, not so much. It deteriorates. It gets eaten. So there are certain things, especially man-made things, that are made to last. And the future generations, the archaeologists, can find those things. And they can build up understandings of previous generations. So, if you buy anything man-made, then you've created a footprint on this earth. You have created meaning. You have created something that future generations can study. If you only use natural items from plant fibers, animal skins, you can lessen your footprint, but you're still not eliminating it completely. These natural items still have a shelf life, if you like, depending on their environments. Some of them can survive a lot longer than metal and iron if they're in the right environment. Take, for instance, the marshlands in northern Germany. These are going to create some amazing finds that archaeologists love. We have been able to find actual human bodies that predate the Romans in these bogs and marshland because they were put in the right environments. There's still hair, there's still skin, there's still meat on these skeletons. They look like really scary Halloween costumes more than a person who should have been dead for thousands of years. It's amazing what the environment can do. If you use the bones of animals, like the antler horns or whale bones, and you use that material in your daily lives, then archaeologists can still find those materials thousands of years later because bones last a lot longer than flesh. Let's do another example. If you build a house out of brick, you'll lay a foundation and you'll use unnatural material that will last a long time. Now, if you put in quality of life items such as air conditioning and electricity, you're putting more things in there that are not there naturally and can be used by future generations by archaeologists to gain an understanding of what life was like in our time period. Now, if you decide to build a teepee using only animal hides, rope, wood. It's not permanent. You're not leaving a foundation, but you're still going to leave remains that the archaeologists can use. There are going to be pieces of animal hide, pieces of rope, broken wood that you're going to discard because it's no longer useful to you that the archaeologists can discover and gain an understanding of your life. There's also going to be disturbances left by your teepee. The grass is disturbed when you set up your teepee and when you leave the discarded rope, animal, and wood remains. If you decide to build a fire pit because it's cold, that is made unnaturally. And if it's not messed with, it can be found by archaeologists and studied. So even with the most simplistic of creations that relies on only naturally made items, you're still leaving a footprint that archaeologists can study. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, okay, Jacob, fine. We always create a footprint, 
But wouldn't other people disturb our footprints? Wouldn't other people destroy our footprints? And you're right. If they knew about your house, they could change it. You build your house, your brick house, very beautiful, very fine. You love it. Well, the next couple that buys the house doesn't care for it or they expand on it. The archaeologists might not know this. They might not realize that, hey, this is no longer part of the original house. This is an add-on. If there's no written record about it, there's nothing to tell the difference. So what stops our footprints from being destroyed by other people's footprints? Well, nature. Nature actually protects what we create after we die. There's no stopping nature. There's no defeating it. It is constantly expanding. Think about all the work you have to do in wherever you live, if it's an apartment or if a house, wherever you live, that you have to do to stop nature from encroaching into your space. You have to buy insecticide to stop bugs from coming in. You have to weed. You have to mow the grass. There are all these steps we have to do daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, in order to keep nature outside of where we live. And it never stops. Eventually, everything we make is covered over unless it's maintained. Everything eventually breaks down. Here's an experiment that you can do in order to prove this. All you need is a yard that can grow grass and a stepping stone. Take your stepping stone, turn it upside down, and then carve on the bottom your name, the date, and a little message. Just a few words. Then put it randomly in your backyard, or front yard if you prefer. But put it randomly in your yard, flat on the ground. Then let your yard sit there. Let it sit there for two months. Don't mow it. Have some friends come over. See if they can even notice the stone. Of course, they'll complain about the yard. But chances are, as long as it's decent weather, it's not winter, you've had some rain, that stone's going to be really hard to notice. Now let it sit a little bit longer. Now your neighbors are coming over and complaining. Ask them to point out the stone. By this time, no, they're not going to be able to notice. I mean, you know how long it takes for neighbors to get involved in your stuff. Hopefully, how long it takes for neighbors to get involved in your stuff. It's probably been three or four months now since you last mowed. They're not going to notice. Now, the city's gotten involved. Because, again, we're still maintaining our experiment. And they're sending you notes. And they send people out there telling you, you need to mow. Ask them to see if they can find your stepping stone out in the yard. Yeah, it's not easy, is it? The grass is so tall, there's no way they can see that stepping stone. And at that point, they don't really care. They just want you to mow that yard. And unfortunately, you're going to have to. Now, here's the final part of the experiment. Put in your will that your great times 20, 30, 40, whatever number you want to put in there, will collect all the money that you've put in the bank and left for them. They can collect all that money if they find your stepping stone that you had placed in your yard all those years before. If they can find that stepping stone, bring it to your lawyer and show to your lawyer the underside which has your name, the date, and the little saying or words that you put on the back. If they can prove it to the lawyer, then they get all that money you left them. It's going to be kind of hard for your how many great grandchild. 
Because all you're leaving them is the mention of the stepping stone. You're not telling them where you left the stone. You're not telling them at which house you left the stone. You don't even have to tell them at what point in your life you put the stone on the ground. All you're telling them is out there is a stone somewhere that you placed in your life that if they bring to the lawyer and he can prove it's the same stone, they get this money. That's going to be really difficult for them. Really, really difficult. Because at this point, that stepping stone has disappeared. If no one has messed with it, if no one has maintained it, that stepping stone is in the ground. And good luck to anyone in finding it. Now, if you do this experiment, let us know. You can always send us pictures. Well, if you want, we can post it on the Facebook page. It's going to be a little bit hard to do the whole will thing. Um, I don't think the podcast will last that many generations, but who knows? You know, the history on Jeremy is a very long, long story. So we could make it that far. I don't know. We'll see. If it comes to it, we can post it on the Facebook. That's my promise. So this is what archaeology is like. Out there somewhere is a stepping stone that has the information that they need, but your grandchild has something that a lot of the archaeologists don't have. Your grandchild knows that the stepping stone exists because it's in your will. Unless you're very sadistic, which, I mean, you could be. You're doing this to your grandchild. But unless you're very sadistic, they know that you put this stepping stone out there. It's got to be out there somewhere. The archaeologists don't have that. They don't have a will that says, hey, out there somewhere is a boat that answers all your questions about the early Germans. Go find it. They have no proof it's out there. What they rely on is old findings. So where did they find this settlement? Okay, let's assume that the people in this area are going to do the same thing those people did. And we'll search in similar areas. We'll search on top of hills. We'll search near rivers. They can also make educated guesses. They can think about it, look at the lay land and go, you know, I would have put something here. Let me check. And they'll check. And sometimes it's just plain dumb luck that they find it. So archaeology, it comes down to past experiences. It comes down to what we know about other people in the area. It comes down to educated guesses. And sometimes it just comes down to random luck. So for the early Germans, archaeology is what we're having to use in order to build our understanding of what life was like for them. They don't enter the written record until after the Romans are expanding into northern Italy. At which point they run into the Germans under Frederick the Great and they get a real nasty surprise. So for the Germans before then, we're basing it off of archaeology. Now what can we get with archaeology? What can we build with just the trash, the remains of what we find? Well, we can actually build quite a bit from that. We can set up what settlements would have looked like. We can figure out how houses were made based off of foundations. 
based off of where these foundations are placed in contrast to one another. We can see what people are eating based off of the animal bones we find and the pollen amounts that we find. We can build a sense of wealth and power based on the elaborate items that are found within these villages. And we can actually build on certain aspects of people's lives. We can find their tools and their weapons. We can find remains of their clothing. We can find their pottery, their artwork. We can even learn a lot from a person because of their burial sites. We can figure out how old they were, their gender. We may even be able to figure out how they died. We can learn about their status based on what they're buried with and where they were buried. If you were buried with fine weapons, you could be a warrior. If you were buried with weapons, gold, artifacts, and your burial place was placed in a central point, or on a hill, or in a little mausoleum of its own, then we could base our assumptions off that you were probably a wealthy noble. Now, there are some drawbacks to archaeology, or just basing our evidence off of archaeology. First of all, we have to be able to find this material in order to build our case. And finding the material can be extremely difficult. Go back to your stone project again. Your relative that you're sending out to find this stone only knows about it because of your will. But what if there was no will? What if there is no letter to the lawyer or to the family? No written down evidence that the stone is out in your backyard right now. Would anyone ever find the stone? Another issue is that while archaeology can build upon our physical world, we can understand people's place in life, we can understand how their houses were built, how their settlements were built, we have a harder time understanding their mental, their culture, and their spiritual world. Things that don't rely just on items, but rely on communication, on person-to-person contact. Those things that aren't based just purely on material, we have a harder time understanding just based on archaeology. Now go back to our apocalyptic world. Hundreds of years later, one of the archaeologists starts digging into a site, and it happens to be one of our churches. There's not much left. He finds our communion plates, he finds a cross, he finds the baptistry, and he has the foundations. There's nothing written down. Everything is gone explaining what a church is, what Christianity is. What could you build with that? Would you know that the cross was a form of execution from the Roman age? Would you know what it represented to a Christian? What about the communion plates? Would you even think about the idea that it's to represent the body of Christ and his blood? No. You wouldn't immediately just look at a plate and go, Huh, this was used to help represent eating someone. What about the baptistry? They go there and they find a tub or a pool, depending on how large your baptistry is. They're not going to understand what that represents. They'll have no idea what this building meant to people. And that's an issue with archaeology. Religion is very difficult to study just based on remains. You need someone there to explain to you what their symbolism was, what their meaning is. For instance, let's say we find a sword. 
Now along the hilt of the sword, they find a snake. Decently designed, and its center stage, it follows from the hilt all the way up to the blade. What do we do with that? It could be that this is Jormungand, the snake that encircles the world from our understanding of Old Norse mythology. Or this guy really likes snakes, and he had one as a pet, and he wanted to remember it. And so he had it etched on, on the hilt of his sword. Who knows? We can only assume why he had it on his hilt. Why he spent money to put a snake on his sword. We don't even have to stick with religion. Whenever you go visit a foreign place, it could be a different state, a different county, a different country. You're having to deal with customs with human interactions that you're not used to. Think about it. If you live in America, do we go around kissing people on each cheek? No. Do we go around screaming each other's names? No. Do we go around and do we bow to each other? No. But these are customs that other places have. You don't even have to go that far. Go back to when you were a kid. Remember the first time you slept over at a friend's house. Think of all the customs that were different compared to your families. Maybe your friend's family ate differently. Maybe they didn't pray before eating. Maybe they did and yours didn't. Maybe they had a different way of being tucked in to bed at night. Maybe they watched TV and yours didn't. There are so many things that separate us from one another that aren't based just on material items. It's stuff that has to be written down in order for future generations to know about. And these are some of the weaknesses that comes from just relying on archaeology. Alright, well I think this is a good stopping point for today. So, next week we'll actually begin to discuss the settlements of early Germans. Remember, you can go to the Facebook page after listening to this podcast and you can put what you think the mistake was under the discussion. Have a great week. I'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you.